Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. They've become known as the Spitfires of the Sea, the little ships of the Royal Navy's coastal forces that defended Great Britain between 1939 and 1945. And thanks to a suggestion by one of our regular listeners, Jared, today on the Warfare Podcast, we're going to be hearing all about their small but mighty role during the Second World War. I'm your host, James Rogers, and joining me to explain just how important these 2,000 small boats were is maritime historian Stephen Fisher. Stephen is the author of the Hayes Manual on Motor Gunboats and an advisor to the new Coastal Forces exhibition at the National Museum of the Royal Navy. From daring seaborne dogfights to ambushes in the Channel, I know you're going to find this one fascinating. But now here is Stephen Fisher on the Spitfires of the Sea. Enjoy. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How's the start to your new year going? Uh, not too badly. Yeah, pretty good. Getting some work done and some writing done on the book I'm working on. But the, the weather is is foul. So you might even hear the, the wind and rain beating on my window, I'm afraid. Uh, well, no worries about that. Yes, the weather is foul, but it kind of sets up a, a moody, misty, rainy day that would have been, I suppose, the staple for the coastal forces that we're going to be talking about. Indeed, yes. They had to go to sea in all sorts of weathers, so it wasn't always the best conditions for them. This is not a world of you know, gentle joyriding on a, a flat, calm sea or anything. Quite often they're out in all weathers. Sometimes the weather was a greater enemy than, than the German Kriegsmarine. I have absolutely no Doubt. But I'm excited to, to really get into this topic, this fascinating history of the Spitfires of the Sea, these vital British coastal forces that grew from just a handful of boats at the start of the Second World War to a point where there were 2,000 vessels that had served in the forces. So take us back to the start of the war. Whose idea was it to put together this British coastal force and what was its purpose? The origins of coastal forces go back to the First World War and the evolution of a very small motor torpedo boat that was designated the Coastal Motorboat. And this was literally a 40-foot speedboat with a torpedo on the back. And the torpedo actually faced forwards in the boat. So to fire it at an enemy target, you would race towards your enemy target, drop the torpedo off the back and then turn out of the way very quickly so that you don't run into your target and supposedly so that the torpedo doesn't then run into the back of you. Although they're such shallow draft boats, the torpedo would hopefully go under you anyway. But you get the idea. This is a very basic primitive form of motor torpedo boat, but really the very early origins of it. And they were operated by the Royal Navy with some success in the First World War, and they built slightly larger boats, 55-foot boats, and then towards the very end of the war, 70-foot boats. But with the end of the war, with the shrinking of the Royal Navy, by the very early 1920s, 
basically they were closed down and their operational bases were sold off and almost all of the boats were sold out of service so there were only a handful that were kept on for training purposes but then despite the fact the royal navy had forgotten them as you get into the 1930s there's several boat builders private boat builders who were looking to reinvigorate the royal navy and the armed forces interest in these small fast boats and principal among those were two companies british powerboat based in southampton actually just across southampton water in hive and uh, vosper who were based in portsmouth the head of british powerboat uh, hubert scott payne was quite a salesman and he very actively pushed the armed forces including the royal air force and the army to accept these small boats and the royal air force bit first they were most interested in rescue boats and um, they took orders for several small boats that could tend to their uh, flying boats and also act as safety craft um, crash rescue craft that sort of thing and there is an association there with actually lawrence of arabia from the first world war who by now was working under the name of aircraftsman shaw and he tested some of these boats for british powerboat in the very early 1930s and with this development of these boats eventually he managed to persuade the royal navy to take an interest and by the late 1930s, they'd placed an order for 18 of his very early designed 60-foot motor torpedo boats. And these were a little bit larger than the, the First World War equivalents. They had more cockpit space. They had an enclosed cockpit, uh, which the early First World War ones had had. Although the idea for firing the torpedoes remained the same. They were suspended above the engines at the back of the boat, facing forwards, and you literally would drop them off the stern and then turn out of the way very quickly. But there was some competition and some rivalry from this other boat building company, Vosper, who were headed by the ex-Royal Navy officer, Peter Duquesne. And he also had his own ideas for how a motor torpedo boat should be designed in terms of its hull shape and its hull form and its ability to plane across the water, essentially skimming across the water. It's technically described as a planing hull. It rides up over the water rather than ploughing through it. And he designed a uh, private venture boat, a 68-foot boat, which he sold to the Royal Navy. They took a great deal of interest in it and they commissioned it as MTB 102. And that would become the base model that all following Vosper motor torpedo boats would be based on throughout the rest of the war. So by the time you get to 1939, we only had a few of these motor torpedo boats. We had three flotillas of the British power boats and none of them were in the UK. One was in Hong Kong and two flotillas were in Malta. And they were hastily withdrawn. They got back in early 1940. And we had a few other boats that were being built that had been rush completed. A couple of Vospers, Fornicroft had built a couple of boats as well. They were the ones who had built the First World War coastal motorboat. So in early 1940, you have this little hodgepodge mix of small motor torpedo boats and other boats of different functions that British powerboat had come up with. They'd suggested this idea of a motor anti-submarine boat. So like a motor torpedo boat, but equipped with depth charges. So if they spotted a U-boat around Britain's coastal waters, they could race towards it and drop depth charges over the side. Never worked. And that was it. We only had about, I'd say, by the time the, the flotillas returned from Malta at the start of 1940, most of them were too beat up to then take part operationally. We had about a dozen, maybe 20 active boats, which was a very small number and not really enough to do anything with. So yes, at the start of the Second World War, we were very poorly equipped 
in terms of small, fast boats. But if they were able to expand in such numbers during the war, then there must have been some strategic gap, some strategic utility seen by the British leadership that meant that these coastal forces could expand in number. So why were they invested in? What were they responding to? Well, one of the first things that happened during the Second World War, as everyone knows, is France fell. Now, this was quite a big surprise. Our military had never really anticipated having to fight against the entire rest of the mainland continent. And one of the reasons the motor anti-submarine boat, this depth charge dropping fast boat had been invented, was to counter the expected number of dozens of small German U-boats that would surround our coast, as they had done in the First World War. But of course, the situation changes in the Second World War. The Germans capture all of the French seaboard, so they can send their U-boats directly out into the Atlantic. They don't need to operate in the North Sea and the English Channel as much. Instead, rather than use the U-boats for that, they have their own fast motor torpedo boats that they can deploy called the Schnellboat, which literally means fast boat. That can be shortened to S-boat. The Allies quickly started to call them E-boats, which is probably their most famous name. Are these the ones that were involved in the Operation Tiger, the Battle of, is it Slapton Sands it's called today, where you had these E-boats rush across while there was practice going on for D-Day and they actually took out a number of Allied ships and uh, there were losses that took place during that period? That's exactly them. So yes, those were Schnell boats. That was pretty much how they operated throughout the war. So from 1940 onwards, as soon as they capture bases on the Dutch and Belgian and French coasts, they can start making missions across the English Channel and raiding, if you like, our coastline, but also our coastal convoys. And we had dozens of coastal convoys up and down the east and the south coasts. This is how we moved most of our goods and materials. Our train line still in many ways isn't set up sufficiently to move all of our goods and we were very heavily reliant on these coastal convoys and the germans could make these very quick tip and run raids if you like on our coastal convoys get in there quickly sink ships and then be back out again and initially we didn't have a response for this they were too fast for our destroyers and our destroyers were too few in number to be able to defend all of our convoys. We had other vessels like trawlers, armed trawlers and that sort of thing that could be deployed as extra defences. We had frigates and sloops and all sorts of vessels, but these small S-boats come in very fast. They're very small, barely are visible, especially at night, and they can be gone before the escorts have managed to move up the convoy and intercept them. So one of the reasons we very quickly expanded our coastal forces fleet was in response to these S-boats. Right, I see. So did this lead to, I mean, I'm trying to picture it in my mind's eye, you know, when we're talking about the spitfire of the sea, you're starting to think, right, so did they have dogfights, tantamount to dogfights against these other E-boats going one-on-one or swarms of them against each other? Did you have battles like that? Yes, exactly that. So at first, with the the small force that we had, they were very quickly deployed on the East Coast and in the English Channel. But nobody was really sure how best to use them. So sometimes they were put in escort duty, sometimes they would plough up and down the length of the convoy, and it wasn't working. The motor anti-submarine boat had obviously proved itself somewhat useless because there were no submarines to attack. So they very quickly thought, well, ditch the depth charges and put more guns on 
things like 20mm Orlikans, 40mm Vickers guns, the pom-pom gun, that kind of thing. They were then redesignated as motor gunboats. So you have your motor torpedo boats, which the Allies very quickly started building so that we could send them across the North Sea to intercept German coastal convoys, and then motor gunboats, which we're primarily using to defend our own convoys. And it was it was really down to the officers on the ground, or, or on the sea rather, who were operating these boats, how best to decide to employ them. And there was one officer, Robert Hitchens, who decided that rather than try and defend the convoy, the best strategy was to try and meet the E-boats in the middle of the North Sea, either on their way towards our convoys or, slightly easier, less ideal timing, on their way back. Because on their way back, he would know where they had attacked a convoy. So he knows that they're on our side of the channel. And if he can then position themselves between where that incident took place and where the bases are, then he should, in theory, meet them somewhere in the middle of the North Sea. And that's what happened in uh, 1942, I think it was, one of the first encounters proper between motor gunboats and German e-boats. And very quickly after that, our forces start to gain the upper hand because the German Schnell boats, their mission is to sink our merchant ships. They don't want to mix it with our motor gunboats, which are slightly more heavily armed a lot of the time. And as we started to produce our boats in bigger numbers, which we could do through the foresight of people like Peter Decane of Vosper and uh, Hubert Scott Payne of British Powerboat. They designed these boats. All of the, the boat yards were ready to start constructing them. They had all of the tooling ready so they could start producing these boats in big numbers. As our fleet expanded, we were able to create this, this sort of shield, if you like, around our coast for intercepting the German e-boats. And as we started to gain the upper hand into 1943, we stopped defending our convoys and we start attacking the S-boats directly on their own coast. Wow. So these boats are both defensive or defensive to start with, setting up these quite unique ambushes in the middle of the channel, the North Sea, to try and intercept them so they can't attack again. But then they turn to become more offensive weapons as Germany is put on the back foot. And we can actually launch further towards the coast and you know try and degrade their capabilities far more effectively. But take us back to that moment in 1942. So how many boats are we talking about here? How does that sort of battle in the sea play out? Well, initially, the the very first encounter, Hitchens took his flotilla out, which was only, I think at the time, he only had a handful of operational boats. The early ones, they had a, a mix of different engines. We had unreliable engine supply early in the war because originally we were going to buy Italian engines and that didn't last long, <laughs> as you might imagine. We did have a couple of these boats that had Rolls-Royce engines, but only a very few. And they weren't actually particularly suitable engines because they made an absolute racket and that noise travels across the sea and you, you don't want that. In 1942, we started to take delivery of Packard engines from the United States, which again was actually through the foresight of Hubert Scott Payne of British Powerboat. He went over there just before war broke out and negotiated a deal with the Americans to start supplying these engines. So as they start coming over, we get more reliable boats. But 
early in the war, 1941-1942, they're quite unreliable. So when Hitchens took his flotilla to sea, a flotilla usually has eight boats, he was normally taking two or three boats. And that's what happened on his first encounter. He went out with a couple, but two of them broke down and he was left with just two boats to try and intercept these S-boats. Even so, he still managed to, with a, a very quick pounce on them, the Germans, instead of staying to fight, scattered because their mission is to get back across to the Dutch coast. And yeah, these actions are usually being fought at night, so it's quite dark. This is pre-efficient radar, so there's no easy way of detecting the boat except visually or by listening for it. And what you'll quite often get is a short, sharp action with the boats coming at one another, usually one surprising the other, and then uh, lines of tracer crisscrossing across the sea as they try and fire on one another. These are fairly light guns by the heavy standards, you know, 40 millimeter or 20 millimeter, but that's enough to do serious damage to a wooden boat with limited armor plating. And then obviously they'll scatter, they'll try and move apart. One will try and get the advantage on the other by coming in from a blind spot. So sometimes the actions might last a matter of minutes. Sometimes they might reconverge again. They might try and seek each other out and engage in a battle again it's a bit like an aerial dogfight and then usually one will break away fuel was always an issue sea conditions and, and lack of ammunition so just like the spitfire pretty much yeah <laughs> now i'm not going to lie to you Stephen. this sounds like my idea of hell being out in the channel in the middle of the night and let's just bear in mind that all ships at this point if it's dark are going to have their lights off because they have to observe a blackout or they're just going to be taken out and, and sunk by aircraft or by other ships. So these tiny torpedo boats, these motorboats, sorry, are going to have to you know, not only sit there and wait for the Germans to return, but they're going to have to dodge all sorts of traffic. Do we know if there were any collisions? There were occasional collisions, sometimes between the boats themselves. And that would usually be the result of hard-fought action all happening very fast. And unfortunately, even right up until the last months of the war, in fact, in uh, April 1945, two of our boats collided with casualties. Sometimes they would get struck by larger ships. And there were several incidents in memoirs where captains relate how they very narrowly avoided being rammed by a larger ship, either one of the merchant ships that they were trying to intercept or by another convoy that had come in unsighted. And an equivalent boat, not British, uh, a United States boat, PT boat, which stands for Patrol Torpedo, but is essentially the American equivalent of uh, the motor torpedo boat. They're the ones that JFK captains exactly. in the Pacific, right? And he was rammed yes, by go. a Japanese destroyer um, operating He was. And there's that famous story, isn't there, where he then grips the belt of one of his crewmates in his teeth, yes. an injured crewmate, and he swims, or so the legend goes, he swims something like five kilometres to land where he, he finally makes it to safety. And I think he uh, he gets a medal for, for bravery for that. Uh, he, he did get a decoration, I believe, yes. And the entire crew survived. He, he wrote a message on a coconut to give to a coast watcher who then passed it on and they sent a rescue boat. But that shows you the dangers... They didn't see this Japanese destroyer at all until it was right on top of them. And sometimes the night is just so murky. If there's if there's no moon and there's thick clouds, there's literally no visibility at all. And they didn't even hear this destroyer coming at them. It was by the time it was uh, sighted, it was it was all too late. So collisions did happen, and yeah, it was another inherent risk along with all of the other risks of the sea, stormy weather, and and that kind of thing. And these boats are predominantly made of of wood. I assume. I mean, these we're not using too much metal on these, and, and the wood is ideal because it keeps it lighter and means we have to go, it means we can go faster. And speed must have been 
as important as offensive gunpowder here. Exactly, yeah. And they were almost all exclusively made of wood. So these are coming out of traditional boatyards, which is great from a military production point of view because it means we don't have to use up steel, which is being used for the much larger ships. It means that, as you say, the boat is very light. And it means that there's this whole other industry of workers who work with wood rather than being metal workers that is employed in the war industry effectively. So by making them of wood, they're much lighter. They're obviously float a bit better even if they're damaged and the design of the hull this planing hull was the key concept of making them fast so rather than being a traditional bilge hull like any standard sailing ship or or the titanic or something that sits in the water and is held up through buoyancy and then plows through the water without changing its uh, level in the water if you see what i mean these boats are designed to lift up out of the water as their speed increases so they have a a semi-flat bottom and as their speed increases they lift up on the wave until they're almost sort of riding on top of it and that enables a far greater speed for engine production than uh, a traditional bilge hull. So these are very efficient boats that are capable of going very fast, up to 40 knots, sometimes faster. Some of our boats were 35 knots. The E-boats were about 42 knots. We eventually got some slightly faster boats so we could keep up with them, although one of the biggest problems throughout the entire war was that their boats were generally a little bit faster. The problem with these flat-bottomed boats, or the hard chine or planing hull as they're described is then they're best on a flat sea in rough weather across waves they tend to pound into each wave as they get lifted on the wave they then drop back into the trough and they smash against the the next wave and that is not fun for the the crew and i've been in boats like that as they pound on the waves and that's the fastest way to get seasick you can imagine Uh, it's also not good for the boat it makes your journey a lot slower, but it also puts a lot of stress on the, the hull itself. And a lot of boats eventually just became too weak to carry on. Most of the boats, the, the life expectancy was two years before they started to suffer failures of, of the, the hull form and that kind of thing. Aeroplanes, spacesuits, condoms, coffee, plastic surgery, warships. Over on the patented podcast by History Hit, we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own. We uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects. We managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases. Unpack invention myths. So the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress. You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I assume you can also run a risk of being thrown out. I've been on these speed boats, these kind of rib ride boats off the Welsh coast in stormy conditions. And you've got this captain that's throwing these boats around, I'm sure, pretty happy and confident in their ability. I am less confident in that. I think I'm being thrown left, right and centre. And if anything, they're aiming for these waves to fly as high as they want to fly. But in, in choppy conditions in the channel, that's the last thing you're going to want to be doing. Yeah, and um, there are reports of men being lost overboard and just never being seen again. If they were near the back of the boat, there was a very real danger they could be thrown off and nobody would notice. And in fact, most of the boats had a catch wire at the back. So there's two stanchions at the, the back corners with a cable between them. So that if a man was thrown down towards the back of the boat, he could grab onto that and wouldn't necessarily just roll off the back. And they are very bumpy in a, a rough sea and yeah i drive ribs occasionally and um yeah I, i'm definitely not the guy who is looking to <laughs> get the most air as possible but even when i'm driving very carefully the the drop as you go across a wave you feel that you could easily be thrown out and um it was the case with these motor torpedo boats having to go as fast as they can even in rough seas that those sorts of risks were very real now, when you were talking about the speed i noticed that you said that the german boats were faster why was that they had a slightly differently designed hull and, well, for a start, they had very good, powerful diesel engines. All our engines were petrol during the war, which isn't ideal. 
very flammable and that did become a problem and there were many incidents of um, boats exploding because the fumes were the most flammable bit. The German boats had these very efficient diesel engines. They had a slightly different hull design with a very clever system around the propellers. I don't fully understand it myself to be honest. Hydrodynamics isn't my speciality but it enabled the boats to operate very efficiently and they could operate in slightly rougher seas than ours as well. There was some niche concept of the design especially around the stern that just allowed it to make better use of the engine power and push through the, the water a bit better but because it was slightly less flat bottomed they could put to sea in rougher seas than ours and eventually right. we had to design a boat that could also go to sea in this sort of weather as well and was a bit better at um, being able to cope in rough weather and that was a, a very famous boat called the Fair Mile D or dog boat and this comes from a completely different lineage this comes from the Fair Mile company which was a, a boat building company set up very early in the war they saw the benefits of what is essentially the flat pack system and if you think of ikea shopping you get your flat pack bookcase you take it home and you assemble it their concept was to construct all of the necessary parts of a boat the frames which are the skeleton and then all of the planking and prepare it all and then send it to a boatyard and they assemble it so they were preparing all of this stuff inland in Surrey, completely removed from the sea, but then sending this kit to boatyards so that they could then assemble it. And the real benefit of this is you do not need skilled labour to the same level as you would to build standard boats in a traditional boatyard fashion. Because in the same way that you don't need a woodworker to assemble an IKEA bookcase, you can use slightly less skilled labour. So this opens up another I think there were 60 or so boatyards around the country building fair miles who didn't need quite the same level of skilled labour. They could employ slightly less skilled people. You could employ boatyards that wouldn't necessarily be able to build motor torpedo boats because they're building flat pack ones. There's even a company in Southampton called the Southampton Steam Joinery Company and they made furniture and they built fair miles for the Royal Navy. You see, that's so clever because you're able to jump into a, a niche there, aren't you? I mean, you can see that the war-making capacity of the United Kingdom is at full whack. It is stretched to the very limits. And so if you're going to have a coastal force that's going to survive, that's going to prosper in any way, shape or form, you need to identify these gaps in the system. So first of all, you've got the wood there. You've got the fact that you can get American motors, and now you've got a whole part of the labour force that you can harness that isn't being used in other ways that can make these couple of thousand boats that you need. Yeah, exactly. So you're able to profit more from the, the availability of, of what is there, basically. And yeah, with American engines coming in, these fair miles were quickly a fitted with Packards as well. So the Fairmile boat, they started with the first design, the Fairmile A. It was fairly basic. And so they improved it and created the Fairmile B, which is probably the most famous motor launch of the war. But these are round bilge boats. They're not fast. They're slow, but they're ideal picket boats. They can go out on uh, patrol along the coast. They're brilliant for convoy escort, mine laying, mine sweeping, navigation boats. So a load of Fairmile Bs were employed on D-Day, for instance, as mine sweepers and navigation vessels. And then the Fairmile C comes out. This is the Fairmile A again, just with loads of guns on it. And this is a sort of um, heavily armed boat for intercepting or, or sorry dueling if you like with the the german e-boats but then the the naval constructor board they then suggest a design to fairmile for an all-powerful 
motor torpedo boat stroke motor gunboat, the Fairmile D. And this is designed by the Naval Office of uh, Construction with a sort of destroyer-like bow and a motor torpedo boat stern. And by combining these two things, they suddenly had a boat that was very fast and big enough to outgun the German e-boats and also carry its own torpedoes as well. So then you start getting this new design of boat, which is this joint motor gunboat and motor torpedo boat. And the Fairmile D, one of the, the most successful designs of the war, they then become expert boats for they're used in the Mediterranean and home waters for patrolling and intercepting S boats. Though even then, once you've armed them with guns and torpedoes, they still end up being a bit slower than the E-boats. But they were so powerful that they didn't need long to meet an E-boat to unleash enough damage on them to, to have a significant impact. So let's just run through those, because when we talk about Spitfires, we talk about this pioneering, groundbreaking technology. And so if we're going to call these the Spitfires of the sea and this coastal force the Spitfires of the sea, then we need to get the technology right. And I think you've, you've really taken us through a fascinating journey of how they innovated at remarkable speed. But we've got the motor torpedo boats, the motor anti-submarine boats, the motor gun boats, the dog boats. What am I missing? The motor launches, so the early Fairmile boats, which as I said are patrol boats. They're part of coastal forces, but they're a very different sort of vessel, but no less important. They were they were crucial. They were built in great numbers as well for escorting our convoys and, and all manner of work. Maids of all work, if you like. That is incredible. So are there any key moments of the war that we should know about that involved these coastal forces? Were there their turning points that they were involved in? Uh, yeah, I'd say there were several. So the, the very first successful torpedoing of an enemy boat, an enemy uh, merchant ship, is late in 1940. So it's happening quite early on. And from that moment, the higher powers of the Admiralty are realising how useful these boats can be. And really, throughout the war, it's coastal forces that operate almost nightly. In the winter, as the weather worsens, sometimes it is just too rough to go out. And you only need to look out at our coast today to see the, the sort of weather that we get in the winter storms. And, and sometimes it was just too rough to deploy the boats but otherwise they're either out on picket duty or escort duty or aggressive actions on the enemy coast most nights of the year and you only need to look through the logs to see that in terms of uh, crucial moments in their history the, the first successful interception of the e-boats is um, vitally important and we build on that very quickly with uh, strategy and tactics that are developed by the commanders of the boats operating them and they they work out the best techniques to intercept these boats usually it's very hard and fast it's, it's try and get in knock them about as quickly as possible startle them and scatter them and that's the, the best approach in um 1944 in the build-up to d-day coastal forces are vitally important for sweeping the channel and clearing it of enemy shipping in preparation for our assault forces to cross over and, and wrestling back control of the English Channel from the German boats. And by uh, 1943 even, the S-boats are showing that they really don't want to mix it with our coastal forces. They would rather not get into a fight. And if they did come into a fight, then most of the time they will try and back away and, and withdraw because they never had the advantage of numbers that we had. They had far fewer 
S-boats or E-boats than we operated. A bit like their tanks, they were perhaps a little bit over-engineered, so a lot of work goes into each one and it means that they never have the numbers. But by April 1944, a couple of months before D-Day, they're still operating across the English Channel and that's when they intercept Exercise Tiger and the convoy that you mentioned heading towards Slapton Sands and they managed to sink two of our big landing ship tanks and damage several others and that is a big blow. We Those vessels were absolutely crucial. So they can still hit hard but what's often less reported is that in the month of April 1944 the S-boats deployed across the English Channel from Cherbourg 13 times and Exercise Tiger was their only success because the rest of the time they're being beaten back by our coastal forces. And there's one very important incident in April where two of our motor torpedo boats, technically they were motor gunboats, they'd been reclassified by now. All of our motor gunboats were reclassified as motor torpedo boats in 1943, even if they weren't armed with torpedoes, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense, but it was this reclassification as part of the overall general boat that can do everything. So we just classified everything as MTBs at this point. And one of these boats, um, there were two MTBs 414 and 416. And 416 used to be motor gunboat 81 which is still preserved in Portsmouth to this day. And you can charter her and go out for a run around the Solent on her. They were involved in this incident in April 1944, where they were directed to their targets, which were some of these S-boats operating from Cherbourg, by land-based radar. So we had a radar operator on the shore was being assisted by a coastal forces officer who was used to operating with coastal forces. He knew how their boats worked. And then using radio, he directed our two motor torpedo boats on this flotilla of German S-boats and until they could visually see them. And then they charged in for the attack. The commander in MTB 414 actually said, Tally Ho. And in they went, attacked these five S-boats who were completely startled. They had no idea they were coming. And they quickly broke up Two of them were then set upon by the motor torpedo boats and one was set on fire and sunk. The other limped home and the other three withdrew back to across the English Channel almost immediately. And that was the first successful interception using ground-based radar. And that was carried on after D-Day. We put radar operators in larger ships, frigates, and they would operate as a coastal forces control vessel and they would navigate our motor torpedo boats onto enemy convoys using their larger radar systems. And that was hugely successful in the months after D-Day for protecting the fleet and all of our convoys crisscrossing the English Channel, taking more troops and tanks and supplies over to Normandy. You see, Stephen, that is the kind of bits of D-Day history that we just still really don't know about, that have been forgotten to history. And it's remarkable to hear that all of that is going on around the main spearhead of the mission itself. Now, you mentioned that these ships are made of wood, and we're reaching a point in history where the Second World War is quickly moving out of living memory. So how is it this history is remembered today? You mentioned that, I mean, we can charter one of the ships down on the Solent. I mean, that's definitely something I'll add to my list. But are there more restoration projects going on? Are there still any veterans out there that connect us to this remarkable chapter of history? Uh, so these boats are only ever meant to last a couple of years. They were built with the expectation of lasting for the war. As I said, some of them 
by two years' time, their, their design was such that they were taking too rough a pounding from the sea and they were structurally unsound, so they were retired. But even so, there were some designs, like the design for Motor Gunboat 81. So she was a British powerboat Mark V. That design never actually suffered a structural defect as a result of seagoing operation. That said, of course, they, they come into service in 1942. The war ends in 1945. Most of them are only in service for a couple of years. But even so, they're made of wood. They're not meant to last a particularly long time. At the end of the war, the Admiralty, just as they had done with the First World War, they keep a few coastal forces flotillas. They commission new boats. There are post-war coastal forces boats, the Dark Class, for instance, and the Gay Class, and they were very successful designs as well. But even so, the Admiralty got rid of coastal forces altogether in the 1950s and retired almost all of their boats, except for a couple for training purposes. So of the um, the approximate 2,000 coastal forces boats that were built, those that had survived the war, the vast majority of them were then sold off. Most of them were sold to yachting people. They also were converted to houseboats. So take the engines out, convert it into a another living room, and, and you've got the template for a very nice houseboat. And um, many of them still survive today in that function. So there's actually, there's probably about two dozen coastal forces boats surviving, um, but only a few of those are actually in a sort of coastal forces configuration. There's several of the houseboats. There's some in Southampton. There's quite a few at Shoreham by Sea, where you have this eclectic collection of houseboats for your community on the River Adar, and several of those are British powerboats and Vosper boats, and they look very homely, I must say. But there's only a couple that have been restored to sort of a coastal forces condition. So there's Motor Gunboat 81, which has been restored to appearance as she was launched in 1942. MTB-102, the template design built by Vosper just before the Second World War, she still survives as well as an operational boat. And she was used by sea cadets after the Second World War. And then she was purchased by a film company who decked her out to look like a German e-boat although in the the film she's actually a captured british motor torpedo boat which is then used by michael kane as part of his operation to capture or kill churchill in the eagle has landed so mtb 102 became a film star and because they restored her for that that gave her a new lease of life and so she survives to this day up in lowestoft there's another boat a type of boat i haven't actually mentioned the harbor defense motor launch these are a bit like the Fair Miles, but these are boats being built in proper boatyards by skilled boat builders in the traditional way of building a boat. And she's a Harbour Defence Motor Launch 1387. She was actually kept on by the Navy at the end of the war and became a hydrographic vessel. So she was commissioned as HMS Medusa, and she's still called that today. And the wonderful thing about her is she's a time capsule. Because she was never sold or turned into a houseboat, she retains so many of her original fittings, even the engines. So she is a proper time capsule, a fantastic boat to go aboard. And she's, she's quite often open to the public on open days and that sort of thing in Gosport. And then there's a couple of other boats that are um, in museum pieces. So there's a newish museum that opened during the COVID pandemic, actually, called the Night Hunters. And that's in Gosport as well. And that was the brainchild of the Coastal Forces Heritage Trust and produced in partnership with the National Museum of the Royal Navy and Portsmouth Naval Base Property Trust. So she's in one of the, sorry, the museum is in one of the old buildings of Priddy's Hard, which is part of Portsmouth Dockyard. And in there you have two of these uh, coastal forces boats. There's a Vosper 
MTB, I've forgotten the number, MTB 60, and one of the coastal motorboats as well, in fact. So although it's a First World War design, several of them were built in the Second World War as well. So although this is a Second World War motor torpedo boat, it's identical to the First World War coastal motorboats. And there they can be seen in the Night Hunters exhibition, along with lots of information and artifacts and, and videos all about the, the history of coastal forces. And there are some other projects to try and restore some of these boats. There are some companies that are looking to do private restorations and hopefully in the, the next decade maybe sooner, hopefully, we will see some more boats restored to seagoing condition. In many ways, it's a shame. This happens an awful lot with aircraft. There are far more restored aircraft than there are uh, restored coastal forces boats, um, which is a surprise and a, a bit of a pity, I suppose. But hopefully in time, we'll, we'll see more of them around as a, a sort of, if you like, a legacy of coastal forces. Because there are a few veterans still around, but... It's almost 80 years now coming up to, to D-Day anniversary. And uh, very soon, as with all aspects of the Second World War, we will lose our, our living links with those events. So it really is the boats that we need to act as that memorial to them. I couldn't agree more. And it's great to hear that exhibitions like the Night Watchers are out there and that we can go and visit them. I encourage all our listeners, if you can, to head over to Gosport and check out that exhibition. But I feel like we've just skimmed the surface of, of this history, I suppose, a little bit like the boats themselves. Where can we read more about this, Stephen? Uh, well, there are a couple of books about coastal forces. So some of the early books uh, produced in the, the post-war years, rather general histories, although Lieutenant Commander Peter Scott, who was knighted after the war for his work in ornithology, most people know him for his, his work in ecology and ornithology. Most people also know him because he was the son of uh, Robert Scott, Robert Falcon Scott of the Antarctic. Uh, but he was a very significant figure in coastal forces during the war, which is less well known. Uh, he was a commander of various flotillas. And he wrote the, the sort of definitive history of the coastal forces' actions in the English Channel and the North Sea. And it's, it's literally called The Battle of the Narrow Sea. And that came out in 1945, 1946. A lot of it based on reports and incidents that had been directly related to him by other commanders. So it was written very freshly after the war. And there's some fascinating tales in there. Then you, you get the later histories and some of the, the best that were produced were written in the 1990s in partnership with the Imperial war museum so we have separate volumes for dog boats at war and motor torpedo boats in the mediterranean and motor torpedo boats in home waters and they were written by leonard reynolds although they're a little bit harder to get hold of nowadays there is one book I, i'm obliged to mention because i wrote it uh, so <laughs> the haynes manual on uh, how to service your motor gunboat i think that's the full title i can't actually remember what they call it that was the royal <laughs> navy motor gunboat 1942 to 1945 or something like that so haynes manual on, on how to operate one and it's not like the traditional haynes manual of how to fix your car give you some idea of the work involved in restoring a, a motor gun boat but it, it won't quite suffice if you do want to go and make or repair or build your own um, but it will certainly give you a, a very thorough overview of the, the history of where motor gunboats came from and then how they came to operate during the war and the story of motor gunboat 81 herself which led a, a very fascinating war from 1942 as in robert hitchens flotilla who i mentioned earlier and served 
in the English Channel, the North Sea, operating from places like Dartmouth, Portsmouth, and on the East Anglian coast, several engagements with German S-boats. And as I said, later involved in that action just before D-Day, that crucial action where she took part in an interception by land-based radar. And then several actions around the D-Day period, intercepting boats off Cherbourg and that kind of thing. So a really fascinating story. Well, Stephen, I know that you live and breathe this stuff. You and I have discussed this in person before. And if people want to hear more about it and keep up with your own research on this, then they can follow along online on Twitter at C Spitfires. Stephen, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.